The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. Alright y'all, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Numbers. It's way on the left side of your Bible if you're not terribly familiar. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. So one of the first books in your Bible. Now just to set the context for you of this book, we believe it was written about give or take, but about 1500 B.C. So it's about uh, one and a half thousand years before Jesus. All right, so this is when, in fact, the setting of what we're going to read about and the action that takes place in the first half of the book is right after Moses has led the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Now, in, in Exodus... We actually did preach through Exodus uh, some years ago, but in Exodus, you're familiar with the story. You've seen Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, and you understand that it's after, after the plagues on Egypt and after they've crossed the Red Sea, they go to a mountain called Sinai, and Sinai is where God shows up and delivers the Ten Commandments. Right? You remember that? Okay. Israel winds up camping at Mount Sinai for quite a while. And in fact, they haven't left yet by the time we read this passage that we're reading here. Moses is still in the business of explaining to the people, now that you've come out of Egypt, now that you're your own nation under God, here's how you need to act and govern yourselves. Now, as we go through the book of Numbers, we're not going to hit every single passage we're going to concentrate on those passages which kind of advance the plot and move the story forward. Some of the other passages that we'll leave out, they're kind of, they're kind of hard to read through. They're kind, of, uh, they're kind of tough. And so we're not going to start right at the beginning. We're actually going to start in chapter 5. If you turn in your Bibles to Numbers in chapter 5, this is where we will begin. The reason I feel okay about skipping around and I don't feel terrible about that is because y'all can read the book of Numbers on your own. <laughs> right? Y'all, you've all got access to Bibles and it's actually really easy. You can get like a million free Bibles just on your phone. and So uh, I don't feel a need to read every verse of the scripture to you. So here we are in Numbers chapter 5. Please give careful attention as the word of God is read among us. Then the Lord, that's Yahweh in the original Hebrew, Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Command the sons of Israel that they may send away from the camp every leper and everyone having a discharge and everyone who is unclean because of a dead person. You shall send away both male and female. You shall send them outside the camp so that they will not defile their camp where I dwell in their midst. And the sons of Israel did so and sent them outside the camp, just as Yahweh had spoken to Moses. Thus the sons of Israel did. 
Then the Lord Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel when a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against the Lord, and that person is guilty. Then he shall confess his sins which he has committed, and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong, and add to it one-fifth of it, and give it to him whom he has wronged. But if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution which is made for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest, besides the ram of atonement by which the atonement is made for him. Also, every contribution pertaining to all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they offer to the priest, shall be his. So every man's holy gift shall be his. Whatever any man gives to the priest, it becomes his. All right, we'll stop right there. There are basically two uh, concepts, two laws given here. Actually, there's a third one. And they're all kind of repeating laws that have already happened, specifically in the books of Exodus and Leviticus. Now, the first one that we have here, beginning in verse 1, is this idea of setting outside the camp people who were unclean for some reason or another. Leprosy. You kind of, <laughs> you can't be hanging around lepers. <laughs> and so they needed to be put outside the camp. People who are unclean from having a bodily discharge. If you're interested in specifically which discharges we're talking about here, these are found in Leviticus chapters 13 through 15. And don't be trying to eat food while you're reading through this list of discharges. The proper response to the scripture is generally yes and amen. And when you read through those, you can add a ooh on the end. <laughs> yes and yuck. All right, so there's a reason to move some folks outside the camp. Those who are in the Jewish way of thinking, it, was, it made you unclean to touch a dead person like somebody dies and you have to bury them. Well, the person who did that is counted unclean for a little while and they're outside the camp. To us, this maybe sounds harsh, right? Let's just face it, sometimes it sounds harsh. But understand, uh, for these folks, they're, kinda, they're not used to all the comforts we're used to. Living in tents for them is not a big deal. And moving their tent from here to there, not a huge deal. So they can do that and they can put up with it. Okay, and so it, if I could put it this way, these uncleanness laws wind up being a form of temporary banishment from the camp of Israel. That sounds kind of harsh. Temporary banishment or temporary exile for the sake of the camp. Now, we look at this as modern Westerners and we think, well, yeah, you got to get the lepers out of there. They're going to they're gonna infect everybody and soon, soon your whole nation will be a bunch of lepers. You know, you'll have a very tiny camp and then a giant outside the camp where every, all the lepers are. So we, we kind of understand that. And if somebody's got a really gross discharge from an orifice that we don't want to even mention, might be nice to put them off by themselves too. We don't all need those discharges. All right, so we kind of, from a Western standpoint, that's kind of our thinking. But look what it says here in, in uh, verse 2. Or no, verse 3, I'm sorry. 
When God says, send them away, he says, you shall send away both male and female. You shall send them outside the camp so that they will not defile their camp where I dwell in their midst. I'm suggesting to you that this temporary exile did have some health benefits for the nation of Israel, but that was not the reason for the rule. The reason for the rule was because you've now got this tabernacle freshly built under the administration of Moses. You've now got this tabernacle in the very presence of Yahweh. God has descended in a cloud. You don't want to mess with that. And there was an intricate system of rules established. Again, I'd refer you back to the book of Leviticus. An intricate system of religious rules meant to keep unholiness from getting too close to the presence of God at the tabernacle. Not to protect God, but to protect those folks that are less than holy. It's a scary thing. It's a fearful thing, says the scripture, to fall into the hands of the living God. It should be scary to you to think about appearing before the presence of the holiness of God, knowing that you yourself are bringing defilement and sin. So these were religious rules. The uncleanness was not moral. None of these people who were sent out into this temporary exile, they weren't, they weren't sinners. They weren't criminals. They just ran into these unfortunate circumstances, and now they're out here for religious purposes. They're unclean in terms of they don't get to approach very close to the tabernacle of God. Now, in fact, they don't even get to approach inside the camp where the common people are. They're even farther away from the presence of God at this point. Well, it doesn't take much imagination to see that what's really being talked about there. Yes, it was for Israel in that day, and they had to follow those rules, and they did. It says right here, they did this. Good for them. We're counting one commandment that Israel obeyed. By the time we're done, uh, it may not be a heck of a lot more than that. So they did this one commandment, and good for them. But the commandment we see now, after reading the whole story and coming to the gospel in the New Testament, we see that the issue is not this external uncleanness and, ooh, yuck, you touched a bad guy. Or, ooh, yuck, there's a woman on her period. That's not what it's about. The impurity that you and I should be concerned about is the impurity of sin, the defilement of our own unrighteousness. You can be perfectly clean on the outside like all the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day and inside be just as defiled and defiling as a grave filled with all sorts of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Amen? And that's the defilement that God is more concerned about. And the truth is, the scary truth is, this, this exile was temporary and it wasn't a punishment, but there's coming an exile that is permanent, and it is a punishment for those who refuse to be cleansed of the real uncleanness. How do you get cleansed? If you recognize today that you're sitting here unclean before a holy God, how do you get cleansed? The only way is through repentance. Turn away from your uncleanness. Hate it with a holy hatred. And go to Jesus the Lord and say, please cleanse me. Amen? If you haven't done that, I'd urge you to stop listening to me right now and take care of business with God right where you are. Now we get to another rule here, and it says, starting in verse uh, 6, 
when a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind acting unfaithfully against the Lord and that person is guilty, well, we find if we were to turn back to Leviticus in chapter 6, this is again a repeat of rules that were given back there. And the Leviticus passage makes it plain, as I think it turns out to be plain here, that we're talking about not just any sins, but they are sins that wind up robbing your neighbor of something. What is the Bible's punishment for theft? Y'all know? All you Bible scholars? What's the Bible's punishment for theft? Don't you dare tell me that. Don't you dare tell me that. You've got the wrong religion. That's Islam. <laughs> the Bible doesn't command cutting off anybody's hand for theft. The commandment is restitution. And what does that mean? It means that what you took, how about you pay that back? Right? Which one makes more sense? You've got this poor guy who feels like he has to steal in order to eat, and now you cut off his hand so he can do less work than he did before. How does that make sense? The Bible is all about restoration and restoring, right? And so what restitution does is it makes the thief suffer the penalty that he thought to impose on his neighbor by stealing from him. Now, if you've read these things and you've heard us talk about them before, you know that in Exodus, the restitution is a double restitution, generally speaking. There were occasions, if you stole a man's sheep or an ox, we could get into 500% or 400% restitution. But generally, if you just stole something from somebody and got caught with it, it's 100% restitution. You, like if I steal $100 from Haley, which watch out, I'm prone to do those things. So if I steal $100 from Haley and the cops find me, my punishment is not that I go to jail and make Haley then pay for my existence in jail which is what stealing from me again or stealing from him again, right? It's not that. It's that now I've got to work my tail off and pay him back the money that I took, the $100 plus, I've got to give him 100 more. What's the reason? Because I was going to make him suffer a loss of $100. And the law makes sure that when it's all said and done, I'm the one that suffers the loss of my $100. Wow, I want to tell you that when you begin reading through the law of God, you're going to find the whole thing is like this, where it's an elegant system of even-handedness. And I say that in the face of a modern church which believes that the law of God is about cutting off body parts and stuff like that, because that's what the culture thinks. And it's not that. The law of God is even, it's fair, and it's elegant. It's balanced. Sins and crimes get what they actually deserve. And now you know what happens now after I've had to work hard and go get a second job and stuff to pay back Haley double restitution. Guess what? Now maybe I've learned a different trade. <laughs> or I've, now maybe I can hold down a job. You see how that works? <laughs> to educate the thief. Paul in the New Testament says that the thief must learn to work with his own hands so that he has something to give. Listen, we're not going to do that by throwing people in jail. We're not going to accomplish that. Here, I want to settle the seeming contradiction. Exodus says 100% restitution, and here's numbers saying uh, 20%, one-fifth. What's the difference? 
Well, the difference here is that in this passage, the thief comes to his own senses at some point. He doesn't spend the money. He doesn't, get re- he doesn't destroy or sell what he stole. He comes to his senses. And so his own self, under the conviction of his own heart, he takes what he stole and he, brought it to, he brings it to the guy plus 20% and he gives it back. What does that do? Now it gives the thief an economic incentive to fix it before you get caught. <laughs> you get to escape 80% of your penalty if you'll just fix it now. You raised your kids like that, right? If you'll come tell me that you did wrong and just admit it, I guarantee you the punishment will be less than if I have to catch you. Right? That's a biblical idea. Here it is. I think it's neat. Everybody, even Christians, think that the law of God is harsh and it's, it's irrational and makes no sense and it's brutal and painful. And the New Testament does not say that. Scripture says that all the punishments of this old covenant law are just. It's the definition of God's justice. And we need to be on the side of justice. And so now I can get to this. We're not going to make justice happen by locking people in cages. The law of God makes no provision for prisons. How about that? Somebody was just telling me, it was David that was just telling me, the, uh, the percentage of American citizens that are in prison now, if you saw it on a graph, it's this line that's like this, and then real recently, it's just shot up exponentially. Because it's a corporation. Exactly. There are people making money based on how many people are in jail. The same company sends a bounty hunter out to get them. Absolutely. Follow the money everywhere. Follow the money everywhere. I think it's $125,000 a year to keep Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. It used to be one out of every 300 people or so was incarcerated. One out of every 300 American citizens. It's up to one in 10. 350 million or so people in the United States, over 30 million of them in prison right now. That's the number I heard. If I'm wrong, somebody correct me. Well, if it's, if it's less or if it's more, if I've got those numbers wrong, the concept is still the same, that that doesn't represent justice. It represents kidnapping and slavery done by the government that's supposed to be making justice happen. Somebody tell me how this is the way it's supposed to work. This is not it. Listen, when I gave you that scenario where I go to jail and now Haley's paying for me, uh, paying for my three hots and a cot, <laughs> and all of that, Uh, listen, I stole from him illegally. The government comes and steals from him legally. It's the law of God that tells us whether or not what the government does is just or not. So many Christians are under this uh, crazy idea that when the government calls a thing legal or illegal, that you and I should hear that as moral and immoral. Those things are not true. When we talk like that, we are saying the government defines righteousness. And if you say the government defines righteousness, you might as well just come out and say, government is God. Because one of the jobs of God is you get to say what's righteous and what isn't. 
And if we put that at the feet of a hideous, pagan, uh, I don't know what other adjectives I can safely use in church. If you, if you put that on, the, on a government that is despicable in every way, you're going to get what you deserve. And if you allow people in the society to be crushed by those random definitions of legal and illegal, based on just the whim of the government, not based on what the scripture says, if you allow that to happen to a group of people over here who don't look like you, they don't act like you, they don't smell like you, they don't use the same language, you, whatever that is, when you allow government to crush people with their definitions of legal and illegal, I guarantee you, it's the promise of God. He will make sure that you suffer under that same government. We have to be people who are willing to stand up for righteousness. It doesn't mean we have to beat people up or go to war or anything. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that when we have the opportunity, we open our mouths at least and just say, this is not right. So these two things here are actually voluntary. You've got the thief who comes to his senses and decides, you know what? I, I got to give this back. And good for you. All right. If you've stolen something, give it back. It's not rocket science. I was listening to a testimony of a fairly prominent, famous preacher. And one of the things he said was he was raised in Chicago, mean streets. He's kind of a rough guy. He wasn't into the violence and, and drugs and all that, but he was into burglary. And he would go and steal stuff out of people's houses and then just keep them at his house. He wasn't selling them. He wasn't buying drugs. He just had them. He liked having them. God came in Jesus, changed his heart, and he got under conviction that he needed to return all those things. And so he did. And sometimes he's here at somebody's house. He's showing up at their house. He knew where they lived because he'd already been there. And he's carrying, I don't know, a chainsaw or something, knocking on the door saying, hey, 15 years ago, I broke into your garage and I stole this chainsaw. And... I need to return it to you. I've never used it, never touched it. Here's your chainsaw. And he said over and over again, the people that he returned these things to said, what in the world are you doing? I forgot I even had a chainsaw. 15 years. <laughs> right? And it every time gave him opportunity to say, well, I got to tell you, I serve a new master now. My master won't let me get away with theft anymore. Amen? And that's a good story. That's a good story. If you've, if you've done wrong, then as a Christian, you don't get to say, yes, I did wrong, but that's under the blood. Now, your guilt is under the blood, but it's not enough to just say, well, I'm sure God forgave me. If you're a Christian and you do wrong, you have to do what you can to make it right. Not rocket science. Does this make sense to everybody? And this is what we see here, and it's kind of voluntary. So you've got the theft who decides on his own, I'm going to follow this portion of the law right here. And then with the cleanliness laws, they didn't, not only did they not have jails, they didn't have police. What? How did they have a civilized society? No jails, no police? What? <laughs> what they had was the law of God. And they had people who knew it was their responsibility to keep it. And if we had that, 
what use would we have of police? What use would we have of prisons? I don't think we would. So you've got no police. That means nobody going into people's houses, nobody bugging uh, your aunt or your mom to see if she's on her period or not and needs to head outside the camp. Nobody doing anything like that. The, the only people who are heading out to the camp are the ones who themselves say, I'm in this defiled situation. I got to head out until this gets cleaned up. Now, leprosy might be a different thing. You can kind of see that. Apparently, those who know say you can smell it coming. Okay, but these other uncleannesses, I don't have to tell you when I've had a weird discharge. I don't want to. But here in Israel, I might pack a bag and head out until that gets clean. Hey, where are you going? Oh, never, never mind. I'll see you in a few. Do you see what that is? Do you see the beauty? Do you see the elegance of it? I'm convinced that what we see even in these voluntary things, we see God's two categories for how to deal with sin and crime. Only two categories of punishments for sin or for crime in the law of God. Only two. It's a punishment against the person or it's a punishment against the criminal's wallet. Money and flesh. Those are the only two things. If you beat somebody up and you, you hit them in the face, what's the punishment for that assault? You now get hit in the face. Wound for wound, bruise for bruise, tooth for tooth, all of those sorts of things, right? It's even. I, we don't like it. Our modern sensibilities, we can't stand that. But it's even. At least the bad guy is now getting exactly what he put on the innocent guy. Uh, there were times when the judge in Israel might decide that maybe you're not, what you did isn't worthy of death and what you did isn't worthy of exile. But you might do with a beaten. And they'd, they'd make you lie down on the ground and, and whip you. Lashes up to 40. Oh, that sounds barbaric. <laughs> on the one hand, it'd make for great ratings. You don't think people would be watching that if it was televised? That's not why we should do it. But you remember long ago, it's been a while, there was a guy that was uh, imprisoned, an American imprisoned in Singapore, and they were going to cane him. And that became like this international incident. They went ahead and caned him after it was all over. And he ain't been back there to do that crime again. Amen? Oh, well, right. Beating people, it's no deterrent to crime. It's a deterrent to his crime. He's going to learn and not do those things anymore. Death penalty, it's not a deterrent to crime. Well, I guarantee you, that guy's not committing crime anymore. Right? How many times do we put people in jail for rape and they get out and rape again? How many women have to be victimized? So it's two categories. It's either hitting you in the wallet with restitution or it's hitting you in the flesh, giving you exactly what you did to your victim. Amen? Does that make sense? What would our prison system, what would our judicial system look like if we actually followed those sorts of things? The way the culture thinks, they think it would be all this barbaric and, and police coming to look and see who you're having sex with and stuff like There's no police. Right? We already went over that. There's no police. There's nobody snooping in your bedroom. 
Nobody cares. The only way you're going to get in trouble is if you victimize somebody who then winds up complaining about it. That's it. Now, I believe these things, as useful and as awesome as they are to talk about these and consider about how to apply them, first of all, they have reference to Christ and his work in our life. Psalm 69, we're quickly running out of time, so I won't make you turn there, but Psalm 69 says that the spirit of Jesus said, must I now repay that which I did not steal? And there's a sense that what Jesus did on the cross is he's paying a debt that you and I earned. He didn't earn it, but he's the one paying it. The restitution that's owed to God by you and I for every criminal trespass of his law. God in his mercy and grace toward you didn't make you try to pay that. But it did still need to be paid. And Jesus was our our more wealthy brother who was willing to come along and say, hey, that debt that you've got, I've got that for you. Now, with the life that he has purchased for you, walk in a better way. Amen? Just walk in a better way. Stop accruing that debt. Uh, Next week, Lord willing, we'll begin in verse 11. We're going to see what is maybe one of the most unusual laws in the whole Bible. And as I was studying this week, I was looking forward to next week. And I decided while I'm out there on the route not doing anything, I'd listen to some sermons. See what other guys had to say about this passage of the scripture. And I'm telling you, and I'm not being dramatic at all. One of those sermons was so bad. I was physically shaking when it was done. And not ready to vomit, but queasy. And it wasn't that I thought he was such an idiot that it made me sick. It was that his handling of the scripture was so uninformed, so loose, so ridiculous, that it made me frightened for him. He's going to answer to God for the way he preached that. I don't want to be that guy. So when we show up here tomorrow, or on Sunday, Lord willing, and he lets us live, and we're all back here next Sunday, I'm going to go through this, what I think is, it's in the running, at least, for the weirdest law in the whole Bible. And if you're interested in what that might look like, come back. And I think I've got it. And I think it winds up being that what we see in Numbers chapter 5, we're seeing thematic things. If we, we can look back on it now, the people back then, they weren't able to, but we've already read the last chapter and all that. And we can look back on it now and see that these initial laws that are being set out in Numbers, they're kind of thematic for the whole book. Will the people of God in the wilderness prove to be spiritually unclean? Or will they suffer the exile of not being able to go into the promised land that God has for them? Will they suffer that banishment or will they be allowed in? Will the people of God come to their senses and repent of their crimes? Or will they be in line to receive a stricter punishment? Well, y'all know, no spoiler alerts here. Y'all know what the answer to that situation is. 
So I hope you're looking forward to it. I hope this gives you something to think about. If anything, if anything, if I could change your minds as Christian believers in one area, it would be this, to no longer be afraid of the law of God. The commandments that come to us from him are for our good. He's not doing this to beat on anybody or keep you from doing the fun stuff. That is, that is not what the law is. God's law for us is that which makes us able to live at liberty. The unbelieving view of the law is that it's chains and bonds and it's meant to keep you down. But the believing view of the law and what actually happens in the life of everyone who's willing to testify about it, what actually happens is that when Jesus gives us the power to start living in conformity with the law of God, we find ourselves now living a fullness of life and a prosperity and a joy and a happiness that we didn't think was possible. We thought the only way to do it was going to be to be the captain of my own life and live by my own rules and make my own laws. We thought that was freedom. Turned out to be bondage. Now under God's law, we find what? Freedom. Can you hear William Wallace on the table? Freedom. It's only found in Christ. We're not talking about a law of slavery. We're talking about a law of liberty. This is for you, my friends. Do not let the current misunderstandings of the law of God keep you from your inheritance as the people of God. Amen? This is your book. Read it as God's method for your own liberty and freedom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much in the name of Jesus. We pray that if there are sins that we have not yet made right, if there are people that we need to go to and approach and say, hey, I, I, uh, I did wrong and I need to try to make that right. I pray that you would not let those things leave our minds until we've done something about it. Forgive us all our trespasses. We're thankful for the restitution that you paid for us. It's our only hope. We thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.